If you have a copy of uh, God's Word, turn to Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to continue in our series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if there's one thing uh, that we have all learned uh, in this book is that it forces you to deal with really difficult topics. It forces you to deal with life as it is and not life as you think it should be. Uh, The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is popping all of our balloons, exposing all of our idols and all of our weaknesses. And so I thought I would start off the sermon this morning by talking about a particularly hard thing in my life, something that I don't like to talk about, something that I really wish had never happened, a really painful time of life for me. And it happened on November 30th, 2013. You might remember it as the kick six. Uh, As an Alabama fan, I can assure you that this is a bruise that time has not healed. So let me take you back to the scene. Uh, Alabama and Auburn, it's the Iron Bowl. The game is tied at 28, and it's likely headed to overtime. But after a replay review, uh, the referee puts one second back on the clock. And that was good news for everyone who was wearing crimson. It was one last chance to win the game. So the ball is placed at the Auburn 39-yard line. Alabama lines up to kick the field goal. The ball is snapped. The kick is up, and then I black out. I really don't know what happened after that. I have repressed that memory. But let's just say that if you were wearing crimson that day, what you thought was good news turned into really bad news in just a matter of a second. And if you were wearing blue and orange that day, what you thought was bad news turned into really good news in just a second. In our passage this morning, it looks like the preacher is giving us bad news. He seems cynical, he seems pessimistic, but I think what we will find in this passage is that it's bad news that actually leads us to really good news, that this text is actually much more hopeful uh, than it first appears. And so with that in mind, let's read God's Word uh, together. Ecclesiastes 7, I'll read verses 1 to 23. Hear God's word to us today. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for the anger lodges in the hearts of fools. 
Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and, that, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us today as we look to your word. We pray that by the work of your spirit that you would open your word to us and open us to your word. I pray that this would be a comforting word for us and that you would particularly be with those who are scared and who are lonely and who are hurting this morning. And so help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we've done on other sermons in our a series in Ecclesiastes. I want to uh, talk to the children directly first and give two questions. If you're a child uh, watching it this morning, I want you to think about two things. First, as a child, what are some things that you can't do? What are the limitations you have as being a child? And then secondly, what does it feel like when you get a really nice, unexpected gift? And for all of us, Uh, what I want us to see in this passage is that the preacher gives us two pieces of bad news. Uh, I'm going to be a bit direct and blunt because I think that's actually how the preacher uh, talks to us uh, in this passage. It's the tone and tenor of the text. So the first piece of bad news that the preacher gives is that you are not God. This is the essence of of what it means to live under the sun. If you've been a part uh, in this series in Ecclesiastes, the preacher has been our guide showing us what it means to live life under the sun. Under the sun means that there is something that is higher than we are, that we do not sit above creation, but rather we sit below creation. We are dependent creatures. Life under the sun means that we are subject to forces and powers that are beyond our control that there are things that are beyond our comprehension and our understanding. And so, therefore, you are not God, is what the preacher wants us to know. And so, if we are not God, it also means that we can't know everything and we can't do everything. There's an interesting turn in the passage that happens in verse 13, where the preacher tells us, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He doesn't speak of crooked in the moral sense that we might think of the word 
crooked. Uh, We would say that man is crooked or he is a scoundrel. But in this verse, the word crooked is to be understood as something that is inscrutable or incomprehensible or mysterious. The preacher says to us, in a sense, God's ways are not our ways. There are things that we just don't know and can't know about God. Who can explain what God has made unexplainable? Who can know the mind of God? Who can know why God has permitted the coronavirus to take over the world? There are crooked things, mysterious things in the world that we can't make straight because we are not God. We have limits as human beings. There are things that we can't know. There are things that we can't do. And it is good to remember that this is actually how God created us to be, even in the garden. God made Adam and Eve to be dependent beings. They were not self-sufficient. Remember, it was not good that Adam was alone, even in the garden, a place that had the presence and the blessing of God, a place that was free from all sin. Adam was still in need. Adam had limits. He didn't know everything. He couldn't do everything. And it was perfect, even in his limitations. But you and I live under the sun. We live in a broken world, and we too have limits. But not only can we not know everything, and we can't do everything, we also can't control everything. In verse 15, the preacher says, In my vain life, in this vapor of a life that he has lived, that he's seen it all. He's seen a righteous man who has died young, and a wicked man who has lived to a hundred that never gets caught in his wickedness. And so where is the justice in that? Where is the justice in letting uh, the wicked prosper and the righteous die? It's the same line of reasoning that Asaph uses in Psalm 73. Why did the wicked prosper? Why did God's people suffer and the wicked get rich? The preacher, what the preacher is trying to tell us in this part of Ecclesiastes is that there is a limit to wisdom, the limit that, that wisdom can only take you so far that we have to be wise about wisdom. Think about it this way. You can be the wisest person on earth. You can try to do everything right. You can be as morally sound as anyone in the world. You can eat all of the right foods. You can exercise continually. You can give money to the church. You can be a good parent. You can work hard at your job. You can be a good neighbor, and you can help old ladies across the street. And yet, you can still get hit by a truck and die. You can't control your life because you are not God, and I am not God. You can take every precaution possible. You can wash your hands, quarantine from everything and everyone, and you can still get the coronavirus. You can plan your retirement perfectly. Do everything that you're supposed to do. Invest early, invest wisely, and you can still see the market crash before your very eyes. We don't control our lives. And there's a lot of explanation given on what the preacher means in verses 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is not that uh, the preacher is advocating for unrighteous behavior. But rather what he is saying is that we should not trust in our righteousness and in our wisdom 
to protect us from all harm. That there is suffering in life that is asymmetrical. That we don't know why some suffer and some do not suffer. That we're not God. That we cannot make straight the things that God has made crooked. Ultimately, we can't control who suffers and who doesn't. In God's economy, A plus B doesn't always equal C. And sure, there is good and right wisdom that we are to use in life. See the book of Proverbs for that. In this life, this is what generally happens. If you do this, this is what you can expect to generally happen. The way of wisdom is the, is the way that you can live skillfully. But again, we must be wise about wisdom. Wisdom has its limits. There are exceptions to every rule. There are things that will always be out of our control no matter how wise we are. But again, we so desperately want life to make sense for us. We want life to be clean, to be linear, for things to be logical. And the preacher would tell you that if this is what you were trying to control, it's vanity. It's a vapor that you are grasping at smoke. And what you're really trying to do is you're trying to control something that you cannot and will not be able to control. Life isn't linear. Life doesn't make sense. If you're a fan of the show The Good Place, life is a bit like Jeremy Bury Me. There is no secret formula to life. And that if you just figured out the formula and you did all the right things, then life would go as you had planned. We are not God. We don't control everything. and We don't know everything. In my office, I have a picture that sits uh, just behind uh, my desk. And this idea came from a seminary professor uh, who wrote about this in a book that, that I read. And in this frame that I have uh, behind my desk is a painting of John 1.20, where John the Baptist is uh, before the priest and the Levites, and they ask John the Baptist, who are you? And he responds, I am not the Christ. And so every time I look up from my desk, every time uh, I am in a meeting with someone else, just in the background, there is a reminder that I am not Christ, that I am not Jesus, that I, I'm not God, that I don't know everything, I can't fix everything, and I am not the Savior of the world. I can't know every hurt, I can't explain everything that I would like to explain, and I can't control everything. Because what happens is I am tempted to think that I have a lot more control and a lot more power than I actually do. But that is a vapor. That is vanity. That is me grasping at smoke. To our ears, not being God sounds like an attack on our freedom. It sounds like an attack on our autonomy and our independence that we long for. It sounds like bad news. But the preacher would tell us differently. He would say that life under the sun means that you are not God, but it frees you to know that there really is a God. While you are not God and you can't know and do and control everything, there is a God who knows all things, who can do all things, and who controls all things by the word of his power. And do you see how this is freeing to you? Think about verse 14. When you know that you are not God, it frees you to enjoy days of prosperity, 
to receive days of prosperity as a gift from God. It frees you to enjoy life when you know that all of life is of grace, that all of life is a gift from the hand of God. It's one of the themes of Ecclesiastes that we've talked about, that life is gift and not gain. This frees you from entitlement, frees you from self-centeredness. It roots you in reality and frees you to enjoy life because you know that in the end you have not earned anything. If you're a fan of Chick-fil-A and you use their app to uh, uh, order, when you order the food, uh, you know the sheer joy that fills your heart when you check your email and in the subject line you see those two blessed words in the subject, just because. And your mouth begins to salivate when you open the email then, and you find that your good friend Rodney or your good friend Mark or Brent or any of those other operators or purveyors of poultry grace, you find that out of the goodness of their heart that they have given you a free chicken sandwich. And you know that you've done nothing to earn this gift of God. You can receive it with open hands because you know that it is a gift. You can enjoy a sandwich. When we live knowing that we aren't God, but we live knowing and trusting that there is a one true and living God who does know what's going on, we can see all of life as just because. In the day of prosperity, we can be joyful. In the day of adversity, we can know that God made both days, that he is no less good in the day of adversity, he's no less in control in the day of trouble, And we can admit what the preacher says in verse 14, that we will find out nothing that will come after us. What the preacher is telling us in verse 14 is that no one but God really knows the future. I can't remember a time in life when this has ever been more apparent. Because frankly, none of us know what the future holds. It's always been true. But there's a sense in which, in these days, it feels more true to us that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in two days or in two weeks, in two months, or in two years. But a word of comfort to you is that God does, that He knows what's going on. He knows the future. He's in control. And that answer, uh, that doesn't answer all of your questions That doesn't ease all of the anxiety that you feel. And that doesn't put back all that you have lost. But it does remind you that you are not alone. And that there is so much more going on in the world that we don't know about and can't understand right now. You are not God. I am not God. But there is a God. And he knows what he's doing. So that's the first piece of bad news for us. Second piece of bad news that the preacher gives us is that you're going to die one day. The saying used to be that the only thing that you could be sure of in life were death and taxes. And this year you can't even depend on taxes. April 15th is now July 15th and you don't even know what's going to happen with taxes. You can't even depend on that. But there's one thing that's true of all people at all times is that you're going to die one day. Humanity has a 100% death rate. There are no 
exceptions. In a century or so, none of us will be here unless our Savior returns. So whether it is from the coronavirus or heart attack or cancer or trying to homeschool your kids, all of us are going to be dead one day. And given the current situation in our world, it seems as though we talk about death more than normal. We get daily updates, hourly updates, on the number of people who have died from the coronavirus each day. We're hearing more and more about people that we know, people that we're connected to, and all of a sudden death seems closer than it was before. And let me be clear, as we talk about death, that death and dying are not a part of God's, of the way that God created the world to be. Death is the supreme and the final proof that the world is messed up, that the world is fallen and broken. But just because death is the final enemy doesn't mean that we can't grow in wisdom as we consider the reality of our own death, because death confronts us with reality. Look at verse 1. The second half of verse 1 is a punch to the gut for us. The day of death is better than the day of birth. We're going to talk about dark and cynical. What about verse 2? It gets better. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. To, to put it another way, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 3, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The wise person is the one who goes to the funeral and not to the party. And this is not because the preacher is against joy and against celebration. Read the rest of Ecclesiastes, but what he is saying is that death is a great teacher if we will listen to it. Think about it this way. What is more revealing about a person? Their birth announcement or their obituary? Where will you learn more about a person's character? At their funeral or at their baptism brunch? Your early life is filled with so much optimism and potential. Anything is possible. Life is, is yours. You, know, you might have been around a toddler they were playing and pick up a ball and they throw it across the room and someone says, ooh, I think we have a football player. They're going to be a quarterback. Or they stack blocks on top of each other and we're convinced that they are destined to be an architect. It's all potential. It's all optimism. But think about a person's funeral. Their life is complete. There's nothing that could possibly be added to their life, nothing that can be changed, nothing that can be redone, nothing that can be improved. The story is over. And wisdom comes, the preacher tells us, when we go to the house of mourning. When we go to the funeral, because we realize that one day it will be our turn. Death is a great teacher because it reminds you that life under the sun doesn't last forever. But frankly, that's terrifying for us. While there is nothing under the sun that is more reliable and more sure and more certain than death, we all live in denial of death. We chase youth and vitality, but yet time keeps marching on. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French theologian who said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room 
alone. Just the thought of us sitting in a room alone with our fears and anxieties and insecurity and with our shame, with nothing to distract us, nothing to numb our pain, nothing to stimulate us, that is sheer terror for us. Sitting alone would mean that we would have to face the reality of our own mortality and the surety of our coming death. And we will do anything to escape dealing with reality. And we've all got different medicines, different therapies that we use to numb the pain. We've got an endless news feed that we can scroll through to take our mind off reality. We've got endless substances and endless distractions that we can go to. But the preacher says, don't numb your pain by going to the party. You won't find wisdom there. I love how one writer put it. He said, I've never met anyone drinking himself under the table who was dealing with life's big issues. And of course, you could substitute a hundred other things for drinking in that quote. In verse 6, the preacher compares the laughter of fools. He says, it's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Trying to escape reality is like burning briars. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of smoke, but not a lot of light and not a lot of heat. You won't find wisdom at the bottom of the bottle. You won't find wisdom at the illicit website. You won't find wisdom in the pills that you can't do without. You won't find wisdom in an affair or by consuming or by spending. There's plenty of pain to go around these days. How do you deal with the pain of life? How are you numbing the pain of life? Do you numb the pain of life by obsessively taking in every bit of information in an attempt to control by knowledge that if I can just get enough knowledge, if I can just know enough, then I can protect myself from all harm? Or do you numb by sticking your head in the sand and ignoring everything? Thinking ignorance is bliss. Do you numb the pain by looking down your nose at those around you who under quarantine, who aren't doing it right? Or you think that everyone who over quarantines, that they're just crazy? Or do you look down your nose at anyone who just quarantines differently than you? There's this angst and there's this unrest and we can't deal with it. So we have to look down our nose at other people. Are you numbing with an addiction, with some, kind, with some type of compulsive behavior? What are you using to insulate yourself from the ouch of life? So I want to think, is there any good news? Is there any good news in the midst of the bad news that we are going to die? Perhaps you're watching this morning and you're thinking, I know I'm going to die, but the thought of that is absolutely terrifying to me. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. I'm lonely and I'm fearful and I am without hope. But there's good news for you. You're going to die one day, but God has conquered death for you. That there is life beyond death for you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so where do we see this reality of life beyond death? in our passage this morning. In verse 20, you look and you read to this point in the passage and you get the sense that the preacher is exasperated. 
that he throws up his hands and he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who always does good and never sins. And in verse 23, he says, all of this I have tested by wisdom. I've said I will be wise, but it was far from me. And that which is far off and deep and very deep, who can find it out? The preacher steps back and says, no one can do this. He was confronted with his own limitations, with his own inability. He was confronted with the reality of his own sin and his unrighteousness. And this passage, and indeed the entire book of Ecclesiastes, is begging, is begging for one who would come, for one righteous man who would come, who would always do good, and one who would never sin. The one who would say, I will be wise, and in every way he was wise. Jesus is the limitless one. He's the limitless one who took on the limitations of humanity. Jesus is the all-powerful God of creation who humbled himself to live as a man, to live under the law. Jesus is the one who from all eternity existed and ruled above the Son. But because he loves you, he came and he lived under the Son for you. He is the one who knew no sin that became sin for you. And so for all of the ways that we doubt, for all of our failed attempts to try to be God, for all of the ways that we try to numb the pain of life and deny the reality of death, He came for that. And He did it perfectly. And not only did He live in our place, He died in our place. The only one who didn't deserve death is the one who took on death for you. And in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus conquered the final enemy of death. When you die, you will be separated from everything that you love. From your money, from your possessions, from your accomplishment, and from everyone you love. At your funeral, you will be separated from everything but this. That not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That even in the grave, that your soul will still be united to Jesus, awaiting a resurrection when body and soul are reunited. In a, renew, in a renewed world, where we will dwell with God forever, and death will be no more. I've got good news for you. You are not God, but there is a God and he knows what he's doing. You're going to die one day. But thanks be to God that he has conquered death for you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would take this word and that you would use it to strengthen us. That you would remind us of our inability and that you would take us to our Savior Jesus. And that in him you would comfort our souls. We pray this in his name. Amen.